Hello, and welcome to On Tap, a theater and performance studies podcast. I am Sarah Bae Jung of York University, and I'm joined this episode, episode 48, by Miriam Felton-Dansky of Bard College. Hello, Miriam. Hi, nice to see you, Sarah. Lovely to see you as well. We had a brief exchange earlier about our joint uh, bread and puppet uh, posters in the background. Um, and I am also joined by the inimitable Daughters of Lorraine podcast creators, um, Jordan Ely. Hello, Jordan. Hi, it's good to be here. Of University of Maryland College Park. And of course, Leticia Ridley, uh, soon no longer to be of uh, UMD, uh, headed to, uh, tell me again, Santa Clara University in the Department of Theater and Dance. And where where I know you will mourn the weather. <laughs> you know, I'm a California girl, so as Biggie said, I'm going back back to Cali, Cali. <laughs> Congratulations. Amazing. Um, today on the podcast, we will talk about uh, non-fungible tokens or NFTs. What are they? Why do we care? And why do potentially overpriced digital artworks have to do with performance? We will also talk about lessons from online teaching, the good, the bad, and the Zoomly, uh, what we've learned, what this might portend for the future, uh, and some general thoughts around how people are managing in uh, the spite of everything that's going on, or as we've taken to calling it at my university, do all the things. Um, and as a bit of reassurance following that um, uh, part, we'll discuss the article, Attending Live Theater Improves Empathy, Changes Attitudes, and Leads to Pro-Social Behavior, uh, forthcoming in the Journal of Experimental Social Psychology for July 2021, um, and available right now as a pre-publication from Science Direct. And for those of you who are interested, we'll put a link on the, on the website coming up. But we'll talk about through this and, and what an empirical study of what many of us have been saying about theater for a long time uh, actually looks like. And finally, of course, we'll close with drafts. Uh, before we get started, uh, I wanted to begin with a uh, acknowledgement of the land and the territory where I'm currently recording from. Of course, this meeting is virtual, and we are not all gathered in the same place, either those of the my fellow co-hosts and certainly the audience. So I recognize that this land acknowledgement is not for the territory that all of us and perhaps you, the listener, are currently on. We ask if this is the case, that you take the responsibility to learn and acknowledge the traditional territory that you are on and where appropriate any current treaty holders. As a member of York University, I share that York University recognizes that many indigenous nations have long-standing relationships with the territory upon which the university campuses are located that precede the establishment of York. York University acknowledges its presence on the traditional territory of many indigenous nations. The area known as Takaranto has been caretaken by the Anishinaabeg Nation, the Haudenosaunee Confederacy, and the Huron-Wendat. It is now home to many First Nation, Inuit, and Métis communities. We acknowledge the current treaty holders, the Mississaugas of the Credit First Nation. This territory is subject of the Dish with One Spoon Wampum Belt Covenant, an agreement to peaceably share and care for the Great Lakes region. As we look forward to engaging our topics and thinking about our role as treaty people, 
We also think about how in a digital age, the technologies that facilitate these connections and our ability to form even virtual communities with each other, at the same time, take from and extract resources from indigenous and other communities around the world, as well as both material resources, as well as labor. And so I just want to extend that acknowledgement and also my, my thanks to everyone who contributes to make this possible, both those that are known and the many more who remain um, unknown and invisible in, in facilitating this kind of work. I think as we then have a responsibility in thinking about uh, these topics, our teaching, our learning, our research, that we always hold these kinds of histories foremost in our minds and make sure that the actions that we take are always done with uh, an eye towards how they can empower and create um, better conditions for everyone. And certainly, as I know, all of you here with me today and perhaps listening um, have been doing is we the way we hold community through, through theaters, both acknowledging our histories and those legacies, as well as what are the potential futures that we can create for each other, ourselves, and our, of course, our students and, and their community. So thank you again for, for being with us to um, what I, I don't know if this is the first time, but but certainly one of the few times we've had like the the all female identified uh, uh, podcast recording. So a, a special moment in that as well that I'd like to recognize and <laughs> thank you all for being with me today. Um, okay, so before so we will get started. Um, Really interesting to, to me, perhaps I'm alone in this, um, but this is the, the NFTs or the non-fungible tokens, right? And these are, um, if you haven't been following along, these this is basically a, using blockchain technology, which no, I will not explain um, uh, to you in the podcast today. Um, essentially uses a kind of distributed uh, uh, AI network that can um, create a, a single distributed identifier for a for a digital token, right? So, in, basically, what it means is that um, something that is a that is a digital artwork or a digital quote unquote object or some some kind of piece of data that has um, that is accessible um, online becomes unreplicable. Uh, or irreparable. I can't. Someone is going to correct me on the. Uh, on the it's okay. We understood on the, on the pa podcast Facebook page, right? And unrepeatable, right? So that basically there is there is one one of these tokens. There is only one, and and this actually answers in the art market um, a really critical question, which is of forgeries and um, and repetitions, right? And so how do you guard against? You know forgeries, and there's certainly a whole industry of experts and and ways that people can you know validate that that's an actual you know Jackson Pollock and not one that has not just a clever reproduction. Um, but certainly, when we talk about digital art, uh, those are obviously even more so uh, vulnerable to different kinds of copying and um, online digital reproductions. And so the 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 technology that creates this these NFTs um, has you know really created a, a kind of distributed uh, technological solution in which there is something that is truly one of a kind. The other interesting thing I think about this is, from an arts perspective is that every time that token changes owners or is sold, it has built into it its own um, um, built-in royalty system, so that as an artist. You know, when I sell a painting, that painting may uh, acquire continual value and be sold and resold and, and auctioned, et cetera. Um, but none of that um, 
uh, residual value ever comes back to me as the artist, right? I have really one moment to, you know, take take be paid for my labor. However, the NFT does have embedded within it a uh, a mechanism whereby every exchange creates compensation for the artist. And what we've seen uh, in in the last you know few months or and a uh, little over a year is a real explosion of 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 this, um, and in ways that are both you know really interesting. So there's a an an, an artist. Uh, uh, Sophie Brousseau, for example, who um, uh, just had uh, her art collection um, valued as an NFT worth about $66 million. Um, and I, there was a whole article on this um, that I can put. Also here, just kind of weirdly here in Toronto, um, a digital house. Um, so this is a home that has been created entirely in a digital environment, um, uh, just sold for $650,000. Um, so, 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 anyway, so I think this is really quite fascinating and, you know, taught in some ways seems to work against the ephemerality of the digital artwork. And so I guess my question for you, and sorry for this imponderably long intro, but my question for you is like, do, do you see this perhaps happening with performance? Um, are these NFTs their own kind of instantiations of performance technologies? Um, you know, can you imagine doing like, you know, pr what a previously ephemeral work and, and are there implications in, um, uh, in intellectual property rights, for example, around like, you know, I'm thinking about choreography or, you know, staging. Anyway, I think there's a number of really interesting intersections. And so I, I sort of offer this of like, I think it's really wow. Plus, who would pay $650,000? I mean, I know the housing market's overpriced here in Toronto, but it's a virtual house. Like, you can't even live in it. So anyway, I, I, I open this up to the floor. Maybe, Jordan, what are, you know, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I think that this is this was fascinating to read because I was um, it was kind of like a really weird real life version of like Second Life or something like, oh, wow, um, a digital house that, you know, only exists, you know, virtually, but is has direct effects. Right. If someone is paying real live money for this house that that can't even be inhabited and i i do believe though if i'm not mistaken that the furniture is going to be replicated in real life which i thought was so fascinating because it seems to be this understanding like oh no this can't actually just exist in this very virtual ephemeral space like there is an expected material, physical product or object that is supposed to be sort of like, um, um, is supposed to be gained out of this. And so I, it just made me think about, you know, just some thoughts about digital work is always about like, where's the body in it? Where's, you know, embodiment, these questions about how you <laughs> are embodied in the digital. And it, to me, the, what what something like NFTs shows is like, or or the process of having to make all of that actually appear in real three D life, um, is that the body is already embedded digitally. Like all of the digital technologies, all of the things that we use are already inherently embodied, right? Like your phone is just a phone 
But like what makes it do the thing is you doing like you interacting with it. Twitter is just a simulacrum without people like <laughs> interacting on it. What makes Twitter Twitter is the the people's interaction with it. And so to me, um, it's interesting to think about NFTs in that realm because like what there still is an expected material presence that has to happen in order for it to become more real to people, which is very, that's fascinating to me. Um, So I just found this very, um, this really small sector of the world that I did not know about previously. And now I'm like, I want to go down that rabbit hole. (laughs) Well, I mean, it strikes me that there's always, I mean, if you've, if, and I invite people to, 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 if you haven't to check out the house um, and other of these spaces, but because very much like second life, part of the value, if I'm understanding you correctly, Jordan, is also like this idea of projecting yourself into it. Um, which seems to me also fundamentally theatrical. Like, what is the fun of of making a play or going to see a show? Or, you know, often a lot of uh, those kinds of, you know, embodied performance gives us the opportunity to kind of think ourselves into into fantasy or to, you know, unreal spaces that also have like that kind of, you know, tangibility, materiality. Um, But, you know, as someone who's written about viral performance, and this also seems to to really tie into questions of of you know networks and uh, and viral replications and how these things spread both the actual thing but also the news of the things right so the the kind of commentary around NFTs I'm sort of I'm curious how you're thinking about this Miriam and and what you know how, you know do you, are you seeing other similar things happening in 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 your sphere. Yeah, thank you. I mean, this was completely fascinating. I agree with Jordan. I want to spend a lot more time thinking about this. Um, One of the things I started thinking about um, in reading these articles about NFTs was um, really kind of the early days of net art, like like early 1990s, mid 1990s net art, where um, artists who were crossing um, boundaries between um, digital art and performance and visual art um, were in, envisioning the internet as a democratizing space. And we all know how disappointing um, the internet has been um, in that regard. But um, but thinking about the idea that um, replicability and um, open source and and um, and access was something that could um, unlock a new space for artists who um, were not valued or not being recognized by mainstream arts institutions, whether theatrical or visual arts, other spaces. Um, and that 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 precise replicability was was the democratizing factor. Um, and that was really interesting um, to think about alongside something that um, I remember Joe Roach saying in a in a seminar in um, 2011, um, it, 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 which was um, that he was teaching a seminar about 18th century drama, um, but he began talking about replicability and value and um, and the way that capitalism um, intersects with art and always has, um, or rather has for a very long time. Um, and, and he um, referred back to, of course, Walter Benjamin, but where he essentially he was saying, which was what resonated so much with me thinking about the viral, was that in fact, what the, the phenomenon of, um, of virality or the viral in a digital sense has done is 
begins to flip that um, equation where it's actually not about um, one authentic original. It's about um, the, the spread and the dissemination that is what brings value. Um, so what was really striking to me about um, reading about the NFTs was thinking that this the blockchain technology, which is what prevents it from being replicated in that way, that that is actually kind of the core um, of what this idea is. Um, and then and, and thinking about how um, that, first of all, goes back to such old ideas about authenticity and replicability um, that we that we impart to um, theater in, and also to other forms of art, um, but also thinking about how essentially what's being sold is kind of a score. Um, and that's something that we have seen in performance also. If we think about, um, say, Tino Segal selling a score for one of his performances um, and that, that a museum is acquiring um, not a, a physical work of art, but rather a score. And that was one of the ways maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, that major visual arts institutions began to kind of grapple with this thing called performance, where the rest of us were like, um, there is this thing called a score, it's a play, and there have been plays for a very long time, actually. Um, but but this this wild intersection that we've been that has been unfolding now for at least a couple of decades. Um, so we have this model already. That was one of the interesting things um, for me to think about. Um, Maybe I'll stop there. I have a couple of other thoughts, but I'd be curious what Leticia um, also wants to add to the conversation. Yeah, I was very interested in this from a personal standpoint. Um, Jordan knows this, but I've decided to get back into uh, collecting sports cards. So I was hearing a lot of energy around NFT as it relates to the NBA and them, show, uh, you know, selling these short clips um, via NFT. But the issue is, is there's such a demand for it that I could never even like enter into the game because, you know, they're selling these packs for like $4,000 online and a limited availability. And I think what's really sort of interesting about that is that I'm curious how this technology will continue to sort of be exchanged as sort of this sort of planned obsolescence is so much a part of... um, a part of like how we live in technology, right? Like what happens if the technology shifts in such a way where you can no longer access this digital thing? Um, And that's why I've decided to have material cards, right? Um, But I think what it gets me to think about is also sort of the other sort of implications, the racial gendered implications about like the algorithm itself. So one of the things that came to mind when I was reading um, the articles for today was the Netflix series Black Mirror. And particularly the Black Museum episode, uh, which is essentially this guy uh, is on death row. Uh, He gets the electric chair and this museum literally replicates that experience. And like it's the only one of its kind. Right. So people come to the museum to sort of experience that. And there is some sort of material reproduction that you get to take home with you. But for me, it's like, how do we think through what it means for these nfts to essentially like if you think of the nba majority black men to literally like sell their bodies exchange their bodies in this way um that i think we perhaps need to think a bit more critically about i i think that and i had totally forgotten that part of the black museum uh episode of 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 Black Mirror, but but you're exactly right. And of course, there is in that episode, there's also the idea that somehow the digital reproduction is is itself a site of experience, and that um, uh, and that and that our consciousness 
right? Does not just live in one particular space, which, you know, you know, well before the 18th century, and I'm fascinated by Miriam's kind of recollection and connection between the 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 idea of value um, in in that context as well. But but also the you know the idea that of spirits being captured in photography, for example, or different kinds of performances and 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 rituals instantiating. Uh, immaterial or you know metaphysical presence um, and now we actually and 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 how we have treated and valued or disvalued uh, de- or devalued those kinds of iterations um, and instantiations versus how how like you know it's a it's a it's a imaginary house on a computer for you know like what an actual living space you, you know, would, would provide. I mean, the other thing too is like where, you know, what does it mean for houses uh, and homes to be created in this space? Like, what does it mean for Second Life to create shelter when uh, when actual material shelter is so uh, is, is so grossly expensive that, that many people, I mean, it's one thing to get priced out of clips, but, you know, people are getting priced out of lots of other things. Um, but I think your, your, your point is really, is really well taken there. Um, the only thing I will say is that I wonder in, in ways if this technology doesn't also return some agency back to the uh, to the player. And you know there are all kinds of ex- examples that we have in video games, uh, you know, especially for college players, um, you know, NCAA players whose likenesses, jersey numbers, mannerisms would be you know, copied and in, and encoded in a video game and used as one of the selling points to for a company to make money. But then, um, but there was no compensation that went back to the player. And now, you know, I, I do wonder like where it, it does raise some interesting questions about who is the artist and and who is where what is the artwork and who gets compensated and and can that and that can that compensation. So I mean, I, I think it can kind of play both roles in this a little bit. Yeah, I'm a bit curious about actually the NBA. I'm sure the NBA licensed, right? Like the logos and there's a contract that the players sign, which is very much different than, uh, you know, Krista Kim, who is like the artist who is an individual that's the money's directly coming uh, to her. So I think it's also interesting, like, what does it mean that like sort of all these big players and these big organizations are sort of like, entering the space and perhaps will it further be regulated where this whole idea that the artist can can continuously uh, get profit uh, from their artwork will shift and change because you know capitalism but because folks are, are are saying well this is making me a lot of money and why don't I just like buy it the original time and then all the profit comes to me instead of sort of baking in so I, I wonder how it will shift and I think you do raise uh, great questions about like gaming being a site where this is often already been happening I think of something like sims sims and I wonder with nfts is like you know, there's this whole community where people like build houses and they post it online. And it's like a free exchange where people can take that thing that someone creates and put it in their own game. But I wonder now if it will become monetized um, and people will be like, well, I'm selling my design for you to play in your individual game and I won't sell it to anyone else. I only sell it to you. And what that does, I guess, for, for, I get 
exchange like free exchange without money involved like and I'm not trying to be an idealist in that like money doesn't matter because we all got to live and eat um but I, I I wonder how it sort of shifts it shifts how we think about community how we think about performance and theater and this very sort of communal aspect that I think a lot of theater and performance folks really hang on to like how does that even shift how we're thinking about community community differently yeah, and and if I can jump in, it's I I I think you bring up really great points, Leticia. Um, but like specifically, what I'm interested in too is like the artist Krista Kim, um, talking about like the idea is the asset, right? That the mark like there's a market for this that is su- su- like this is supposed to be. You can either have it as sort of augmented reality, or you can kind of apply it to something else and then this idea that there's like a meditative healing component that's happening i think she calls like digital zen and like meditative design you know like all of these different things that like that that intent i think intention is is a question um i have here so like how does intention actually come out so you can say this was healing for me but like (laughs) what does that actually mean when you're engaging with this I guess I'm I'm thinking from a dramaturgy perspective here is like how do you actually engage this digital house in a meditative way or a zen way um how how can that actually be marketed too and if that there's a market for that doesn't that already sort of taint the intention of zen and healing zen for who healing for who meditation for who um and also like the idea of the idea being the asset here right so like innovation so you know in dh work right that's always a question about innovate 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 and that's all you know that's also a very fraught part of neoliberal work specifically when when we're thinking something about the university and and the question to me is like you know how again that question of democracy that miriam brought up earlier right is like who gets to be innovative who gets to innovate and so i'm very aware of krista kim's position as an, an asian woman right like making her her living and profiting from this in a space where she did not find that market so she did turn to this market for that right but then what does that happen when her ideas start to get appropriated yeah jordan i totally agree and um in terms of what you just brought up and also some of the ideas that Leticia was raising around community and access, um, what is the role of the institution, the arts institution, um, in all of this? Um, so, you know, this this is primarily being described, um, at least as I understand it, in terms of um, very high stakes collections, um, private collections. So can you, is there going, is there a model where you can by by a museum ticket that's maybe affordable um, to to those of us who can't pay four thousand dollars per card or whatever it may be um, and go and see that artwork or is that not actually part of the model is there a nonprofit element to to this mm-hmm. um, to this network or is that has that kind of is that itself obsolete is a question that I've been thinking about I mean all great points and and we could probably continue to, to 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 talk on and on i think i think what is clear is that um you know i think it one there was one point where blockchain felt very niche and kind of marginal right and something that that most of us didn't have to pay a whole lot of attention to and what i what i have sort of observed and and 
it's only reinforced by hearing you all talk, is actually it's encroachment into all kinds of of, of new and novel spaces where we might not have have identified it, right? Like it's not just living in like the the world of uh, of cryptocurrency um, anymore, but is really becoming closer. And so it may be something that that we need to think about. But of course, there are some some real downsides, but also perhaps some some opportunities. Right for things like you know intellectual copyright of of recognition of of labor and contributions that are sometimes appropriated um, uh, or echoed. The only last thing I will say is uh, uh, before moving us on to our to our um, next topic, which also lives in the digital sphere. This is what happens when panel and Harvey leave me to my own devices. Is you know it's 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 like all digital all the time. Literally. Um, no, but is is the um, tremendous carbon footprint of blockchain technologies and the and so it just you know I, I don't have a. Uh, uh, I don't have anything more than like appointing at that, but the huge amount of energy consumption that, uh, you know, crypto and blockchain technologies uh, absorb and uh, and the huge amount of the particularly water um, that that these large scale data uh, data servers require for cooling, but also for for other kinds of power. And so, as we look at the larger questions of sustainability and the erosion of our material world, <laughs> like recognizing how these are are actually working in in concert with one another. So, but thank you very much for that. I also just want to come back to I love Miriam's idea of like the the patterns of expansion. And, and then contraction, you know, and what has value in one era suddenly becomes profoundly devalued in the next. And, and so it'll be stay, uh, you know, stay tuned for where the, you know, uh, uh, crypto influence in performance goes. I'm waiting for the next crypto performance and, and kudos to the first NFT show, right? Because then, you know, who knows what, uh, if you do, um, uh, let me send you the donation button for uh, AMP New York University. Yeah, it sounds like we won't be able to afford it. <laughs> it's probably true. All right. Um, for our next uh, next topic, of course, um, we're turning to um, uh, another kind of uh, crypto uh, currency um, that is of the, of the online teaching. Um, and so, Miriam... What has your year been like? How how are things going? What are your thoughts now that we're sort of you know um, have the the great online experiment of you know universities 2020 2021 you know uh, and what should we think be thinking about next? Thank you. Um, first of all, I I actually cannot move on without um, adding. One more little thing um, that we were talking about in terms of um, blockchain technology, just just around its um, potential obsolescence, um, and, and that just thinking about how obsolescent technologies don't go away, they become kitsch or nostalgia or props or um, or something else. And so I think that we can think about that in the digital world as well, that, that even if blockchain, um, you know, doesn't 
somehow doesn't function in the way that it was intended anymore or isn't valuable in that way, it's going to exist in its obsolescence and things don't actually disappear and go away. So I, I wanted to, to just say that. And then Sarah, um, you know, what you just said about um, the environmental impact of um, these servers kind of is actually a lot what I was thinking about when we talked about doing a, a segment on, um, on online teaching. I was reflecting, um, I, I was talking with, uh, our colleague and good friend Jacob Gallagher Ross and and um, and he was like, "Why are you doing? Uh, why are you leading a segment on online teaching? You haven't been teaching online." Um, and and what that led me to is just to say, um, you know, I think that um, in in talking about online teaching, the good, the bad, and the Zoomly, um, I actually will not be talking about online teaching. Um, so I, um, um, I am I'm rejecting that premise slightly, um, just to say, I think that we um, maybe, or by we, I don't mean the four of us, but rather just um, academia in general, um, have now developed a kind of um, binary between in-person teaching and online teaching. Um, and in fact, what most of us are doing in some way is some combination of the two. Many institutions are doing some combination of the two. Um, and and so um, the, I, I had kind of two principal ideas that I wanted to share and um, and see what all of you think about. But so one of them is there actually, um, it's not a binary of um, in-person versus online teaching that actually there's, um, there's something hybrid about um, what most of us are doing, even if our class takes place primarily online. Um, so that's that's one, and um, and the other is that context is everything, and um, and what I mean by that is just simply um, that it's even for those of us who you know may have been teaching our courses, um, meeting uh, only over Zoom. Um, we're not teaching online, we're teaching online during a pandemic um, that has exacerbated every form of inequality that has come with trauma of every way, shape and kind. Um, we are teaching under crisis conditions and for many people, the crisis that maybe began over a year ago um, has not abated. Um, and I think that many of our institutions are asking us to behave as if it has, um, or behave as if we've become acculturated to teaching online, um, or, or that's um, new practices. Um, and so what I actually didn't, um, I, I would love to hear what all of you have enjoyed and loved about, um, about teaching online. So I, I don't mean to um, make this just a, just a critique, but um, but I do think it's really important to actually acknowledge that the pandemic has hit different people in extremely different ways, um, and that people in many cases are dealing with all kinds of other things that were not part of their work lives before, um, whether that's being in some caregiving role or the space of their home or um, whatever else it may be, um, and that the extraordinary amount of labor that um, many of us have put into keeping our institutions going, actually, which has been um, a job of faculty and um, Jordan and Leticia, I imagine graduate students, um, and Sarah, I imagine administration, Right, um, that 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 has to be acknowledged and accounted for in some way um, that I don't think has materialized yet. So I wanted to bring all of those things up, um, and um, as to how has my own year been, um, we don't have time for that. But um, but I will say. Um, Bard was one of the institutions that opened in person in the fall. And so I have been teaching in person um, since this year began with some components of my course hosted online. Um, and uh, 
there there are things that work better on Zoom. There are things that work better when you're shouting about classical Sanskrit drama through a mask in a giant black box theater so that your students can be as distant as they need to. Um, but really what I want to talk about is that I think that we need some kind of institutional reckoning with labor um, and with inequities of labor. Um, and that is what has emerged most powerfully for me from this past year. So. I really appreciate the contextualization. I, I agree with that. Yeah, go ahead, Jordan. <laughs> oh, no, I would say, I mean, I agree with all of that, right? I mean, as a graduate student, like, I can tell you that it's very difficult to, um, to teach online um, because it is, you know, it is something that um, often requires a lot of unpaid labor that um, is kind of expected. So, as for someone who had never like run a class entirely virtually, um, it required you know going to trainings that are outside of my contract, you know, and and doing um, hours sp spending hours learning just how to do <laughs> a lot of the things that are required for me to keep my contract. And it's not as if I can you know refuse that because I'm not in a position to that that I am able to do something like that. Um, and and sometimes, you know, if we're sort of questioning or critiquing this culture, I often also think about, um, I mean, academic Twitter is both great and terrible in so many ways. Um, and one of the things I think hi like highlights inequities with it is like the idea that a lot of sort of tenure track or tenured or full professors kind of talking about like, you know, I'm not giving my students any tests, you know, I'm not, we're not doing anything. We're just coming to class and breathing together. And then we close the zoom call and that's it. And, and it's like, I've, I've seen a lot of contingent faculty and also graduate students being like, that's great. But when you're talking about the inequities and hierarchies of the university, so many of us can't breathe together and close our Zoom calls and like that's all we had to do for the day. Like we have to answer to institutions and universities and all of that because our jobs are dependent on healthcare and healthcare is important, I don't know, in a pandemic. So like there's so many um, things that are being um, exposed to your point um, that you brought up, Miriam, right? There's so many inequities that are being brought up within online teaching, right? That it's um, it's difficult to to kind of think about what is like what what we're doing because it's not normal. Like I didn't choose to go online, right? Like this is something that was necessitated by a, a public health um, crisis and, quite frankly, like a governmental failure. Um, and and so we're doing the best we can but like some of us can do the best we can better than others simply because of the positions that we're all being put in um so like it it is always it's nice to hear those sentiments about like you need to be compassionate to your students but like i also think about there needs to be some compassion for those who are also kind of necessitated by the institution to participate in this on these labor practices because it's like our livelihoods are dependent upon that. If I had to pick a lesson I've learned from online teaching is that, well, hopefully one day I get to not do it under a crisis. <laughs> no, I, I think that's a that's Multiple a fair crises. point. Leticia, how, as you're sort of thinking about this transition, 
you know, from from this year. And I don't I don't know if you've been teaching because uh, I know you've been doing a dissertation uh, during a pandemic and online. Um, but but also thinking about starting a new position and moving into a new uh, a, a new context. Like how you know how are you thinking about this? Yeah, I will say that I did teach online, but I was luckier than my fellow graduate students because I because I am a pre-doctoral Ford fe- a fellow, I had a safety net of having funding not exclusively tied to the university, so they have to work with the Ford. Um, so all I during this entire pandemic, I only taught one online class. It was a very small class, about eight students, and you know. I I just want to sort of echo everything that everyone says about labor, about sort of reckoning with labor and the different precarious positions that we are all in when it comes to teaching online. And for me, one of the things that really sort of resonated with me is like the energy that it takes to wake up, go in front of the computer and try to get your students excited virtually when you're potentially staring at a whole bunch of black squares, right? And like that sort of like labor of like energy or like trying to forge connections is often not accounted for when we're teaching. Like I, when I taught in person, I was like, oh, I can feed off of you. Like I'm getting something back. So I feel like it's more of an exchange when virtually sometimes my students just didn't have it. And then I felt like, and perhaps this was just me putting this on myself, the burden of trying to like get them to fill it um, and, what, and whatever that means, right? Like sometimes students didn't want to talk about the material because they were just exhausted with other things. And with my students, there was a lot that the university was putting on them in, in our theater department of being like, we're doing this production or this festival and we need you to be on Zoom for six hours, right? And like, that's exa- <laughs> that's exhausting. So, you know, I try to sort of create space for my students to be like, hey, sometimes the most important thing is not this reading or this video that I had you watch, but to have a space of reflection and that we can, we can have that space be allowed and we may get to the material, we may not, we may push it off, whatever it is. But I think what I, one of my biggest lessons that I learned was to allow the space of the classroom virtually in person, the space and the flexibility to like go with the wind. Um, and whatever I need or my students need, we can create a space that, that allows for that to happen. Um, so, you know, I had great students for the one class that I taught um, and I, they were my last UMD <laughs> students, so they'll always have a, a special place in my heart. But when I was applying to on the job market, a lot of my materials had to sort of nod to my ability to teach online, right? So that's like, that's a shift that me and my advisor talked about a lot of like, well, we're in this moment and I have to account for it as an, as a teacher going to, you know, potentially a new place. Well, I am going to a new place, but like account for, I was like, what do you mean potentially? That's, the contract is signed. I'm going. Um, but like accounting for like, hey, if we're still in this pandemic from a year from now, how do I show them that I'm able to sort of teach online in creative ways? My job, my, uh, sorry, my teaching demonstration was virtual, right? So like I had a classroom of 30 students I've never met before. And I had to, you know, try to sort of make that connection. They were a great uh, class. I had a great time teaching them. But I think 
sort of online teaching just has us sort of thinking about what it means for other places of our profession. So someone who's entering the job market. Um, And then also the wear and tear on our own technology. Like I pay for my own internet. Like I pay for my own laptop that's now being used so much. (laughs) Um, And like the university's not like, here goes a thousand dollars for this. (laughs) So like the way that sort of Uh, material has been sort of placed on me to sort of like purchase and use and learn just to sort of echo what Jordan was saying about trainings and such. Yeah, I think all of that is is really right. And and it does also, um, you know, um, Leticia, to what you said about technology, that's also affecting students who are suddenly, whereas they would have before been working on a scene in a room, now they are needing to have the capacity to edit, um, you know, a big video file. And they may not have a laptop that can actually do that. Um, and and most colleges and universities aren't equipped to support that um, for theater students who, who um, didn't come into school necessarily thinking that that was what they were going to be. Um, you know, one of the things that I've been thinking about is is primarily the mode I've been teaching in is hybrid, where students join both in both in the classroom and over Zoom. Um, and for most faculty that I have spoken with, that is the worst nightmare. Um, I actually think that that is in some ways a best case scenario because. Um, if if done not under crisis conditions, it could afford a certain kind of access um, that allows different students who have different needs to access the classroom space in different ways. Um, so I do I do want to to say that um, and that I've been lucky to be in an institution that did do a really good job of um, being in person and managing um, cases on campus and having a really, um, really, really um, powerful response team and cares team and thinking about the whole community. Um, but um, but again, there's, there's labor that goes into learning the technology. There's also labor that goes into cleaning the classroom space um, that we didn't do before. So just physically wiping down all the surfaces with our students is not a practice um, that existed in necessarily in classroom spaces before that's become built, built into um, the hybrid classroom experience. Um, and I think a couple of other things that I've taken from, from my experience um, in hybrid classrooms is um, free-flowing discussions are much harder because students simply cannot hear each other. Um, What becomes um, maybe somewhat productive from that space um, is that from necessity, I find myself or other students find themselves recapping what's been said much more frequently. Um, And that slows down the pace of the conversation. And it means that students who, and I think that this is true for a lot of students, feel like they can't engage because the conversation's moving too fast or the material is presented too fast or they need to process fully before they have some a question or something that they want to share. Um, there's actually more space to do that, um, and there's more um, kind of there's more processing that the group needs to do. And if there's space to do that, um, it can be really productive um, for a lot of students. But um, but again, I think the context is all, and I think that um, in this moment, we simply should not be saying how is your online teaching going? We should be saying, how is your online teaching in a pandemic under crisis conditions going? Because that that's the reality that we're that we're that we continue I, to. I think in. that's a really a, a really fair point. I mean, the the you know here at York, we we have had online teaching and e learning for quite some time. 
Um, and it takes a very different form when it's done deliberately and intentionally and through choice than it does in the kind of emergency teaching. Um, I will say that you know one of the things that, that I've seen and experienced is that there have been new spaces that have opened up that might not have been accessed or explored previously. Um, some new work in, in virtual reality that actually makes um, some kinds of experiences. I've, we have some curatorial students who've, who've recreated an entire exhibition uh, of um, Northern um, Inuit uh, art um, from a previous exhibition in which some of the folks who were sort of in the communities being represented were not able to physically get to the gallery here in Toronto, but through the virtual um, reinstantiation can have access. Um, but that doesn't take away any of the other pieces of this. And I think we can all attest to the fact that communication uh, and and some kinds of empathy and understanding uh, have have really become strained, if not eroded, under the current under the current context. And so uh, I, I take your point on the slowness, and I think you know maybe there are opportunities there to kind of dig into that, um, as well as to think through the questions of access and and you know we talk a lot often about meeting students where they're at, but this is actually a moment in which. You know, we've had to do that in a really extreme um, and explicit way. And I think the and the failures to do that or the the recognition of all the different places that students are at and, and how we might uh, not be able to meet them with our traditional structures is, is really evident. And I think uh, an important an important thing to learn going forward. I would also just like to sort of add as a sort of quick point like this about like teaching in crisis is that for a lot of students and for a lot of uh, teachers, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking of myself, like we've been in crisis even with like black life continuously being taken, yeah. right? Yeah. So, you know, it seems like sometimes the institution is like, it's a crisis for everyone, so now therefore we mm -hmm. can care about it, when it's when there's those of us who are in these institutions that are constantly under crisis as well, yeah. right? And, and ev all the time. Um, so I just wanna sort of wanna recognize that and put that in that space that um, we, we, we should also sort of think of crisis in this moment as continuous and happening even before something like the pandemic. I, absolutely. No, I, th I think that's a that's a, uh, a good, excellent reminder and and really well, well, uh, well placed. Um, one of the questions, though, uh, that I think you, you point to is the question of, of, of empathy. This is my terrible attempt to segue into our third uh, our third topic. Um, uh, because I do think that 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 the whole question of of ignorance around you know who who is in crisis when and what are the what are the crisis moments and for whom and and what elevates uh, a problem to the level of crisis um, it's true I think that that institutions are are uh, you know are made up of of a lot of people. Um, and that getting everyone in, in, a, in a large group of people to focus on something simultaneously is incredibly difficult. Um, and it's in part because sometimes you need a kind of shock in order to spark that kind of empathy and appreciation. Um, and, and so the, the, the pandemic has done that and it's opened up a lot of other recognitions that I, that I really do hope will be one of the lessons uh, from, from online teaching 
you know, crisis teaching writ large. Um, but one of the the for our third topic, we looked at, at at some questions of or some empirical studies that that really take up precisely this question and the argument that many of us have have made and have read and and have been making for some time around the idea that somehow theater inherently creates empathy in its audiences and that it can facilitate. And so there a, a group of researchers. Um, ran a, a, a study and then published it. And, and, you know, Leticia and Jordan, I don't know if you want to sort of talk through about about the arguments of, of this essay, uh, of this article, and what you thought of it. And, and you know, were there any surprises in it for you? And, and you know, kind of fill us in on the, on the, on the details here. Yeah, so the, a team of researchers um, wanted to explore the question of can theater foster empathy in audiences? Um, Can they gain some sort of um, investment in one another from watching the stories of other people on stage? And so they took the um, the plays, three plays, so it was um, Sweat by Lynn Nottage, Skeleton Crew by Dominique Morisot, and um, Wolf by Hansel Young. I, I hope that I pronounced that correctly. Um, and they they chose those three plays and they they essentially gave them surveys both before the plays and after the plays um, to see if there was some change in behavior. So whether that was um, their their consciousness around the narratives that they saw change, um, did it you know, inspire them to um, take social action. And that that was defined primarily through like donations of of, um, nonprofits and charitable work. And um, in the study, they found that there was a link between seeing these um, theatrical productions and the production of the, you know, what they define in in empathy, um, suggesting a link between um, narrative and um, and empathy. Um, And so I... Reading this article, it was, you know, similar to what you said, Sarah. I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, right? Yeah, mm-hmm, exactly. There's just not, it's not like there's an entire field of study in which a lot of people have been saying that, but go science. I, I love science, so I just want to point that out. Um, but, um, but yeah, I it did feel like, yes, thank you for for this right like this empirical evidence that you can point to and say yes this has been you know studied um but you know i think that leticia and i had some questions actually about the study itself and um and i'll let leticia speak about um empathy specifically um but one of my questions was about uh, we we spoke about ephemerality earlier um with regard to digital it's like well how long does this sort of reaction last is it um go f- click the GoFundMe and that's it and, and you know that's like the sort of extent of your empathy or is that kind of like is it a sort of sustained consciousness and how might that be how might that be empirically um you studied and um and how can and how can you actually even you know make that make that claim and also even the the question about like do you feel okay so for example in sweat um sweat has a lot of different narratives that it's that it's juggling in that um 
in that play. And one of those is like the very deeply um, embedded racial relations between this group of working class um, people. Um, and and like, I mean, Homeboy comes from, from prison and he's a Nazi, right? Like he's in a white supremacist group. So it's like, for me, the question is like, who are you feeling empathy for? And like, why are you feeling that empathy? And I feel like there wasn't, there and they're scientists right but like they're a question to me about narrative is like do you feel bad for um for Faye and skeleton crew and is that actually going to translate into some sort of like action for black women in her position um and there's also like the curious not naming of specifically black workers mm. in detroit it was workers in detroit um just sort of like there right and so yeah but anyway, yeah, the TCL. and I just sort of add on to that, Jordan, is I was also sort of curious around uh, the choice to uh, name empathy as the thing that is like they were trying to sort of identify and, and say that this thing is happening, that people were more empathetic. And perhaps that's because I've, I'll just sort of put it on myself that I fall in line with Sadia Hartman's sort of wariness of sort of empathy um, in her in her in her monumental manuscript scenes of subjection where she is sort of questioning this idea that if people were just so so empathetic then then if we just got them to show some empathy then something would actually change like slave owners would have never been slave owners um and so I, I'm always sort of wary of, of empathy as a goal. And in particular, I, I think for a lot of folks uh, who don't see themselves specifically in the theater or on stage, I'm always curious about what it means that we need we need to feel sort of some sort of connection with the characters in order to sort of feel some empathy. And I and I wonder sort of in my own sort of theatrical viewing practices that I got introduced to theater not seeing myself on stage, right? Like, so the goal, I, I didn't find see a connection with these characters, but I could still get something from it. Um, and perhaps that's me collapsing sort of connection and, 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 and empathy a bit. But I wonder what our sort of impetus is to sort of desire that we need to see ourselves or like to sort of say these grand statements of like, this isn't, you know, a black story this is a story of america or you know like this is this is a story about everyone it's talking about love like what does that sort of like desire and move come from because like for me difference or not being able to connect does not mean that like something some sort of exchange can happen that can be positive right um yeah so i'll leave it there and, and sort of ask you all your thoughts about sort of empathy in, in theater go ahead I mean, I completely agree with with all that you just said. Um, I have I have a long list of reasons why I felt outraged reading this um, study, and um, and many of them, Jordan and Leticia, relate to the things that that um, that you just brought up. So I I won't repeat all of them here. But um, you know, first of all, of course, Jordan, as you as you began with. Um, what what this brought up for me in a certain way was what would it take for there to be a genuine conversation between psychology and theater um, because this is not one um, the 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 um, engagement with theater is completely ahistorical as you mentioned um, there's no acknowledgement that there is an extraordinary long um, and and massive discourse around empathy um, that that goes back hundreds of you know even thousands of years um, so that that was a little bit 
um, it was shocking for me to read, um, although I understand that that um, that's not the perspective that psychologists are coming from, um, but also the characterization of theater itself was so narrow. Um, and that goes to what Leticia was saying, that the idea, first of all, that theater is characterized as essentially a narrative art form in which you see people performing stories. Um, and and that, um, you know, maybe theater is uh, induces empathy more so than, say, novels, because you see bodies on stage performing those stories. But essentially that what it is about is seeing a narrative of a person, and as Leticia said, collapsing difference in some way such that you feel empathy for that person and therefore donate $25 to a, a charity. Um, this feels so narrow um, and, and also so dangerous because um, for one thing, it made me think about um, all the, the long history um, of artists of color, um, queer artists being asked to um, fit some kind of very narrow artistic format in order to be kind of read or understood or um, write illicit empathy as you're describing. Um, I was, I was um, reading the study and I was thinking about um, the essay that Miguel Gutierrez published in BOM a couple of years ago, I think it was 2018, called um, Does Abstraction Belong to White People? Um, and, and he's essentially saying exactly that. He's saying, who? Um, so I have a little quote to read. Who has the right not to explain themselves? The people who don't have to. The ones whose subjectivities have been naturalized. Um, and he, the, the essay, um, which I'd be happy to link to if people are interested in, um, is, is all about um, how um, black voices and Latinx voices and um, many other, um, really everybody but white, mostly male voices have been excluded from the history of, um, of dance in his case um, because there is a kind of expectation that anything that is abstract, anything that is not a narrative with a character that you can empathize with um, doesn't fit that model that we need. Um, the other thing I wanted to bring up that I was thinking about, again, in terms of um, what Leticia was saying of um, do we have to see ourselves in something in order to um, in order to feel something and do something which um, would would horrify Brecht. I mean, I was I was thinking about what what would Brecht say this this entire um, this entire thing um, is all about um, the individual act that in fact prevents any kind of class consciousness or any kind of solidarity across difference. Um, so the the other, the other book I wanted to cite was David Getze's book, Abstract Bodies, 60s Sculpture in the Expanded Field of Gender, which I read a couple of years ago, and which makes the argument that um, abstract sculpture in the 60s, um, actually because it broke away from the history of the statue, um, which was so tied to certain ideas about identity, about bodies, about beauty, um, and, and about binary gender, um, actually opened up the, a realm in which figures, human figures could be depicted without assigned genders, um, and that that, that um, the field of um, trans studies allows us to think about that and see that. Um, and so a study like this, um, maybe it's not possible, but a study like this cannot account for artistic multiplicity. And that really well, bothered me. So well, I, I, so, so I, I feel like I, I need to, to uh, 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 apologize on behalf of, of experimental psychologists <laughs> everywhere, um, of which I am I'm, I'm not one, truly. Um, I mean, I, I, I think you're all quite, quite, quite apt in this. I mean, the, the, what we have here is a real, as in any kind of empirical study like this, right, is, there, is all the terms become reductive. 
and and it is it is why I think many of us went into theater studies in theory as opposed to uh, other kinds of, of, of social sciences um, as a way of getting at some of the same questions, which is to say, why do people do things? What makes them do different things? Um, how might we change what we do to make those people do the things we'd like them to do differently? Um, your, your comments, though, remind me, too, of the kind of what, what has become uh, a perennial conversation uh, around relatability. And this as the kind of key criterion for whether something is enjoyable or not, um, and whether it has has merit and worth and value, um, I do I do find some interesting things. You know, taking note of all of the flaws that you or you know concerns that you sort of raise in the essay, in its kind of reductivism, and. I do find it really interesting. First of all, the the question of empathy is something that can be m calculated and measured, um, and defined in a very particular way. And of course, it leaves out a lot of other definitions. Um, but also the triangulation between theater as a space, and again, narrowly defined in terms of narrative embodied story, um, as a as a generator of empathy that can then lead to um, uh, different kinds of uh, attitudes. And, and actions and how you would get it measuring all the different different spaces um, and sort of teasing teasing those out. I, I would say that the one interesting thing that I thought um, uh, was quite compelling, uh, or at least I found surprising, maybe not compelling, was that they actually found the effect to be more pronounced in those who identified as conservatives than those who identified uh, as having uh, progressive politics. And they, they, for them, for the, the study, they really felt like um, they had measurable uh, outcomes that, that theater did create empathy that shifted outcomes, in the, at least in the short term. But they actually found the most profound shift to be those who had entered the theater um, uh, expressing um, conservative or even what we would think of as resistant outcomes. Now, how that gets shaped by, you know, uh, you know, inquiry bias and um, the desire to be seen in a particular way um, and the effects, you know, that they measured both immediately after the show and, and later. But it does it does seem to me that there, there are two things worth considering here. One is 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 always I'm always interested when other fields take up theater um, in whatever or theatricality and and because because it's uh, it's something that doesn't happen very often um, and we get very annoyed by the ways in which it gets misappropriated right we can just insert the the Michael Freed uh, you know anti theatricality kind of conversation here since Miriam's bringing up you know 60s era artwork um, but but at the same time you know. Um, we certainly have drawn from other fields and and continue to draw from other fields. And so I think I think it can always be worthwhile to look at these intersections, both for what they reveal as the problems and the and the sort of rough edges of how these fit together. Um, but also the the question of because I, as we trend towards things like the digital humanities and other kinds of empirical um, investigations um, and analyses and you know the datification of of performance and certainly in the shift to online you know zoomification of different kinds of where where our performance practices are generating more data than ever before and someone's going to do something with that. 
Um, and and this is one example of, of what you can do with data in and around a theatrical experience. So I would also offer it as a provocation for what can we do with the data of, of our own art form and our field of study uh, and, and take up some of the criticisms of, the, uh, of this, but also leverage it towards new ways of thinking about how we make the case for the importance, the the significance, and and ultimately going back to earlier conversations, like why we should fund it. I mean, that you know, this also has a real effect there too. Yes, Miriam. I was thinking a lot about this, um, the, about the underlying premise of this as um, as being about, um, you know well, we've had to quote unquote, take a break from theater. Should it return? And if so, why? So should we should we fund theater? That 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 did seem to be the underlying question. Um, and so, you know, I acknowledge that as a theater person, it's insulting to have um, that to have my field be, um, be be questioned or be kind of like placed in the hands of um, of a scientist to determine its value or worth, it also brought up the question for me of if we value this research, would that lead to the funding of theater or would it lead to the funding of more psychological research about theater? So so where where would the money actually go? Um, but I, I guess to, to go um, maybe, Sarah, to the question of what what could we be curious about from this, one of the things that I genuinely am curious about is what would the empirical effects, if any, be um, of exploring theater that does not take a narrative form, um, of exploring performance that is does not fall into those kind of obvious places that, that um, non-theater people tend to go? Um, and that is something I'd be really curious about, because um, when I see the statement, theater creates narratives. Yes, it does often. Um, but why I go to the theater is because it creates worlds. Um, and I'm curious about that component, which also, you know, has to do with, yes, there, there's not just one person on stage. There are a lot of people. Um, so, and there's a, there's a, um, th there's a physical setting and there's sound and there, right. You're, you're, there's a whole kind of constellation of things. It's, it's not just a story that a person is conveying to you individually. So, um, so I'd be curious, how you know what effect um, there there is if if there's a scientific interest in this? Um, how could that be expanded beyond a kind of the, the 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 obvious forms of theater? Sarah, I just want to say thank you for reminding us that hey, there's critiques, <laughs> but uh, let's see what's actually useful here because people spend a lot of time producing this research. So I just want to say thank you for that. Um, and one of the things that I also actually thought was really interesting, especially in this particular moment, is their focus on live theater um, and how that idea can be expanded even in our current sort of moment and thinking about, you know, if we're thinking about digital performance, you know, what would a study look like that, that has sort of a similar goal? Um, and then I was also sort of thinking about what this study asks as, as us, as theater, as theater people and performance people, I think they're asking us also to sort of clarify, <laughs> you know, our own sort of research. I think for me in particular, I've been thinking a lot about uh, the role of embodiment in, in sort of traditional theater spaces and performance, right? And what it means that, you know, the, the people on stage may, you know, perhaps be indigenous or maybe Latinx or maybe black, but they're not 
but there's different sort of valiances in in their embodiment, right? And what does it mean that if it's if there's a, a light skinned black woman playing Faye versus a dark skinned black woman playing Faye, right? And what sort of meanings are then created from that? And I think what this study is is clarifying, mm-hmm. at least for me, is that. I think we as theater folks, performance folks, can actually be more uh, specific and more focused in our research and thinking about what does it mean when we say that theater does something or it changes something or that it, it has this effect because there's so many other sort of competing things that are creating this meaning and even in our own viewing practice, right? Like what does it mean to actually really focus it anymore? So I really appreciate it for, for even sort of clarifying that, clarifying that for me. And I also want to add like, that um, and expanding this, I, that I, for me, it's not like don't do this at all, right? Like I think that there's something so generative um, to your point, Sarah, about like the intersections between like the social sciences and and what we do here in the arts and humanities, or like even the hard sciences and and what we do here in the arts and humanities. And I think like for a future study, like actually sort of collaborating with theater practitioners and inviting into I I would be curious about the process of that within rehearsal rooms and like talkbacks and you know dramaturgical support you know all these different um, places where I think um, these these conscious connect because theater for us right is not about that product you know it's not like product driven in our in our understanding of how like theater it's like the process of it, it's the the ma- the making of it the doing of it to be all performance studies about it um <laughs> um and so like i would be curious about even the conscious connections for instance like ugh, oh now i'm gonna oh, i'll say it um within theater spaces there can be a, a like if we're bringing in the the idea that in this study they found that conservatives were the most profoundly affected i would actually be curious about the effect of portraying like what what that what happens in like the rehearsal rooms in terms of like change like um changing mindsets of even the industry with the pr- like productions that are chosen to be a part of seasons um and to your point Miriam about like n- not even just traditional narratives like beyond even that I think with something like sweat it was meant to do I think this very thing that is being measured here in this study like if I'm not mistaken like Lynn Nottage wanted to understand why people would vote for Donald Trump and then went to Reading to study this community in order to produce a work that does this thing. And so, like, as a dramaturg, I'm like, hey, there's, like, intentionalities being measured and, like, that's empirically found. And, like, you know, her dramaturgy was basically validated by this study. But, like, what about... I don't know, funny house of a Negro, which is not necessarily trying to foster empathy in anybody, right? But this is a, a black woman who is, you know, traveling through this psychic journey ar- around specific things that are in um, the black community. That's not meant to foster any empathy in any audience, black, white, or, you know, regardless of that, right? Is it, it is an exploration, as you pointed to, Miriam, of this world building. Um, and so, like, the curiosity in me is, like, what about plays that don't even have like a like a an overtly political message right like um something that they weren't trying to research or or do for that goal um which 
would be inherent to someone like Dominique Morisot's work and Lynn Nottage's work, but like that's not necessarily the goal for you know the disadvantaged groups that they were studying in the in the um, in the article. Um, and so yeah, I just I think that there's potential for actually more collaboration um, and 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 not just valuing what they see on the stage, but actually the process of creation that goes into producing theater and how that also can affect um, how audiences receive the show. So like Leticia's point, casting is very important in that regard. And um, directorial vision is also important in that regard. Design choices yeah, they kind of got to it at the end when they were talking about film and like lights and all that. And I was like, now that's I'm I'm interested in that. Well, I, um, I, I, yeah. I completely uh, <laughs> agree. And I think notions of collaboration and certainly looking for opportunities to deepen some of these kinds of questions, but also to partner with people who have the kind of methodologies and skill sets that can ask different kinds of questions. And, and, you know, and I mean, experimental psychology is also like, it's always creating weird kind of um, techniques to try to measure things that feel or seem to be there, but are not self-evident. And and so thinking about, and I, I do think that there is also a space for uh, experimental psychologists who are often themselves creating little world making exercises and even theatrical setups to 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 think about uh, how to draw on uh, on theatrical expertise. I, I just think there's a lot of possible um, uh, opportunities for thinking through some of these kinds of things um, without dismissing any of the really well-founded uh, critiques. Um, but this has been uh, an extraordinary conversation um, that has, you know, kind of uh, filled up our whole episode. So I just want to kind of conclude by saying thank you to all three of you for being here um, and taking time to, to share all of your perspectives today. And maybe if we can just go around and, and share like kind of, you know, uh, we typically do drafts, um, but just kind of like one highlight from from your your drafts. We'll, we'll start with you, Miriam. Sure. So um, really small highlight. I was um, in thinking about this episode, I was listening to the previous episode. And one of the things that I was thinking about um, was Kate Bredesen, who was a guest on that episode, talking about um, theaters as spaces for mutual aid and for supportive protesters in the Black Lives Matter movement. And just um, that had me thinking about um, universities as those spaces as well. Um, and so as we continue just drawing a little bit on um, on what we were talking about before in terms of teaching, but just as we think about our universities as situated in contexts, um, how, how can we um, think about labor, but also think about the context that our college or our university lives in and better engage in that context. Um, so I was one one real um, small but but happy thing. Um, I was lucky to get vaccinated at SUNY Albany, um, which really really had its act together. It was um, it was a, an incredible experience. And Bard, um, which is so tiny by comparison, had been lobbying um, to become a vaccination site for a long time, and finally was given permission to do a, a brief vaccination clinic, primarily for students who don't have um, transportation off campus. Um, but just seeing that happen made me think. Um, yes about about what kate was saying about theaters as spaces for mutual aid and then also about how can universities also think in that way so that's on that's my really mind. that's really cool uh jordan how about you yes um 
my drafts is actually very similar to Miriam's, um, but I've been, I was lucky enough to participate and, and watch a group here in D.C. Um, called the Reclamation Project, um, and they are a group of um, black, indigenous, people of color, um, queer artists and disabled artists who um, go into uh, theaters around the D.C. area um, as residencies and um, heal their relationship to space. So, for example, they had like a stage manager come and and take um, their spike tape and like mark all the places that they experienced harm inside of the theater. Um, They had another exercise where an actor was walking around um, on their grounds while someone else read the names of all of the um, productions that that theater had did and they stopped whenever it was a person of color and like to see you know how many times that happened and like they also found that a lot of the titles were the same titles right so um, and and I just really appreciate their work and they recently did a a residency at the Kennedy Center um, and um, they reckoned with the canon of American theater and so one of the, the, for example, one of the plays was like um, um, doing Cat on a Hot Tin Roof from the perspective of the servants um, and and just just things like that and so I just really appreciate the work that they're doing um, and and thinking about the relationship between actual physical space and harm um, that maybe have done to marginalized groups and really trying to reckon with that relationship through creating community um, and so I really admire the work that they're doing and I hope that that kind of work gets replicated it reminds me of during the pandemic you know people say theater shut down um, but like no theater's not really shut down right like it's yeah, some institutions have had to put pause on it, but people are really creating some meaningful work right now that doesn't have to be tied to, you know, industry and profit and all that. And so I just want to highlight that as a potential world-making strategy for um, for the future of theater. I think that's amazing. Thank you so much for sharing that. How about you, Leticia? So for me, I'm going to keep it short, simple, and sweet. And I'm going to go march on over to that Disney Plus and say if you have not watched this show called Encore, which is basically um, a Broadway director, choreographer goes to uh, a school or a high school and like 10 years later, 50 years later, they reunite the cast of the musical that was done like 50 years or 10 years before and they restage it for one night only and it's a hoot, it's fun, it's heartwarming and um, I just want to offer that if you need some theater fixing, go on, head over to Disney Plus and if you don't have a login, DM me maybe, I can share you mine. (laughs) Talk about mutual Come aid, for the am I right? Stay for the encore. I love it. Well, thank you all so so much. This has been great. I could do this for hours, and I have to say that you know, uh, in the absence of things like conferences and uh, coffee shops and running into people uh, and hanging out and even planning for you know visits and seeing each other at the theater that this has been a a really nice uh, reprieve from our usual uh, pandemic anxiety. So thank you all very much for being here and I'll look forward to chatting with you again soon. On Tap is produced with the support of the Performing Arts Department of Washington University in St. Louis and its master's program in theater and performance studies. Our associate producer is Carly Kessler. 
Our intro music is by Septahelix, and our outro music is by Gabriel Kahane. You can learn more about the podcast at our website, ontappod.com, contact us at our email, hosts at ontappod.com, and follow us on Twitter, at ontappodcast. 